You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Our road trip through the Old Testament has taken us to the story of David and Goliath, which is my favorite story in the entire Bible. And so I will preach on it at least once a year. And this is the portion of it I'd like us to consider today. This is 1 Samuel 17, 31 to 40. Goliath has been taunting Israel for 40 days. Nobody wants to go out there and fight. Goliath's taunt is this. Send out one man to come fight me. When the words that David spoke, and David is running around saying, why is everybody afraid? When the words that David spoke were heard, they, were, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, this is so important, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And then Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints." Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you would give me anointing to make preaching easy and anoint this congregation to make hearing your word a delight. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your hand would be on all the churches in the city of Beacon, that people would enter them with their hearts burning, and they would leave your churches like a river of life flooding the streets of Beacon, Father God. And we pray that anyone who's in any house of worship for any religion, we pray that any pursuit of God would lead to Jesus standing in the road. And we thank you, Jesus, that you always stand on the wrong road. Otherwise, we wouldn't have found you. We love you, and we pray for your church. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. 
Last week, I really felt the Spirit engaged the sermon differently when we got to the point where we were talking about Jesus being tempted with the kingdoms, where Satan says to Jesus, I own these kingdoms, and if you fall down and worship me, they can be yours. And we just thought about how exasperating it must have been for Jesus to see what rightly belongs to him, offered to him by Satan. And in the moment of preaching, the Spirit took us down kind of a road, and we started to say things like, there are people who claim to be holding your patience. And they say, unless you bend your will towards me, I'm not going to give you your patience back. Or people who hold your security. The security that rightfully belongs to your life. And they say, if you don't live your life this way or do what I'm asking you to do, I'm going to hold on to your security for you. But I'll give it back to you if you worship me. And we spend our time in life seeing that what we feel belongs to us can sometimes find its way into the hands of another person or into the hands of a circumstance. And we feel like if we don't do what that circumstance or that person is demanding, then we might not be able to have what is rightfully ours. Patience, security, love, peace, joy, these kinds of things, happiness. And so we realize that Jesus' response to such a threat was to serve. He served instead of violently fighting. And everything in us says, you have my joy, I'm going to rip it out of your hands and get it back. You have my peace, I'm going to rip it out of your hands and give it back. My parents constantly told me that I wasn't acting much like Jesus all the time. And so finally when I was young at dinner, my father he loves, my dad loves uh, like a loaf of Italian bread, and he's weird. He loves that end piece. And so he asked me for it one day. And I wanted to show him that I can be exactly like Jesus hidden in the person of David. And so I took it, and I threw it from one end of the table to the other and hit him right in between his eyes, much like the giant. And great was his fall as my father crumbled to the ground. But there's times where we feel like that's actually what we have to do. We have to get what is ours back through our ability and our violence and our, our ability to maneuver and manipulate and be crafty and get it. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because the story of David and Goliath is a great story for road trip because at the end of the story, at the end of the story, when Jesus is defeating evil, and says it is finished and closes his eyes, he looks a lot more like Goliath in that moment than David. That's not how it looked in the valley with the Philistine. David was standing victorious over Goliath, and Jesus is dead on Good Friday. Why is his way so different than even David's? Why is his way so peculiar? How does he get everything without fighting violently. I feel led to speak about this on two levels. As a church, as one body of Christ, we have to engage the brokenness of the world around us and we have to engage it in communal form. People have to have a good taste in their mouth outside of these doors as to what the church is, amen? When they think of the church, they should think of a hospitable place, a place of joy, a place of generosity, a place of hospitality, not a place of bigots. And the same should be true of us as members of the body of Christ. So as a church, we fight 
principalities and powers on a corporate level and as members of the body of Christ, we fight individual people in the same kind of way. So there's the battle that every church faces where it's the church versus the community or the church versus the prevailing philosophical thoughts of the day. And then there's me when I leave here as an individual but a member of the body of Christ. I struggle and strive with personal things. And so I feel like we have to talk about this on both of those levels at the same time, the corporate church level versus the corporate brokenness, and then the individual church level and the individual brokenness that we face. David's preparing to fight the giant who has been taunting Israel for 40 days. The location of the spiritual warfare is not Goliath. Goliath is not the point of the spiritual warfare here. I think David and Goliath is a great example and an analogy for spiritual warfare. I really do. I think we've gotten that right. When we talk about David and Goliath and spiritual warfare, I think the connection between David and Goliath and the armor of God is an obvious one, which is why we're doing it. But how it functions isn't so obvious. Goliath is not the spiritual warfare. How Israel was to engage him is where the point of spiritual warfare is. The spiritual warfare over your life is not what somebody's doing to you. That's not spiritual warfare. That's just regular brokenness happening. Spiritual warfare is when you're tempted to fight on the same terms that they're fighting you just trying to be better. Spiritual warfare happens when they're coming at you and you say, I'm going to come at you better than you're coming at me. You're talking about me, I'm going to shut your words down with my words. You're stealing from me, I'm going to make sure that you're as uncomfortable as you're making me feel. You've made me look terrible behind my back to other people, so I'm going to get on group text and make you look equally as terrible, but also better, because I'm better with my words than you are. Spiritual warfare is always the, how we're going to engage the brokenness that we're facing. The community out there screams and yells about the morality and the ethics of the church. And so what do we do? We get picket signs and we end up on the news screaming and yelling louder and bombing abortion clinics and doing all this stuff. Listen, even if we win, we lose. That does not look like Jesus. The only time Jesus ever shows temper, the only time Jesus ever does anything violent is in this room, not out there. Why is he so calm when he's sitting with the prostitutes and tax collectors and he's so mad in here? We've been the opposite. We sing his praises in here and we flip tables out there. That's not what Jesus did. I just want to end there. Like, that's fine. Let's just think about that for a while. Who clapped? God. Hey, so, yo, you hit your one year, so now we're going to let you know how we really feel. You want to end at 11, we're going to clap for you and root you on and carry you out of the building so we can get home. <laughs> Dare you to try to carry me out of the building. Sean Reed could probably carry me out of the building, though. Throw me out of the building from where he's sitting. I want to look at when, when Samuel first goes to pick David, he first sees David's brother Eliab, and he says, let's look at the text. It's 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks upon outward appearance, but the Lord on the heart. So Samuel sees in David's oldest brother what he saw in Saul. He's tall, he looks anointed. They would think Sean Ree was anointed based on this method of being tall and strong, but then they look at the weaker people, the people who lose in basketball to him, and they say, but I think the Lord's anointing might be with Bill and not with Sean Ree. <laughs> I told you, all I can do is talk my way out of trouble. I can't beat you in basketball, so I just talk. That's, that's what I do. So right away, we know that David is winning a fight on the inside that most everybody else is losing. David's got something right on the inside. And last week, we talked about that. We said that if we're losing the battle on the inside, we're going to end up fighting and stress fighting constantly all of our battles on the outside. And we're always going to feel like we're losing. And we're always going to feel stressed. And we're always going to be fighting the way that we're being fought against. David fights very differently than Goliath wanted him to fight, and it's because he's got these things right on the inside. The first temptation we spoke about last week was the temptation for Jesus to be independent, to turn stone into bread for himself. But we know that David shows up dependent because he says to Saul, your servant will go fight the giant. David isn't there to be a hero. He's there to serve. He got there by bringing cheese to his brother's And he calls himself a servant when he speaks to Saul. He's not there to be a warrior. He's there to be a servant, which means David is saying, I'm dependent on your kingship, Saul, so I'm your servant. This is what I'm willing to do, but you say the word. I'm not going if I'm not sent. We know that David is humble. This is probably one of the things that stood out the most to me this year looking at this story. Satan said to Jesus, throw yourself down and God will save you. Throw yourself off the temple and and his angels will bear you up. And last week we talked about this temptation to want to be saved on our terms. I want to be saved in a way that makes me look impressive. I don't want to be saved in a way that makes me look sinful. So I don't want the cross to be the definition of what saves me. I want me doing something impressive like trying to walk on water or jump off the temple to be what saves me. But David says something interesting to Saul. David says, I delivered a lamb from the lion's mouth because God delivered me from the lion. This is a vital component of what humility is. My ability to deliver is based on my capacity to be delivered. If God doesn't deliver me, I can't deliver anyone or anything. And so David's status as somebody who can fight is based on God's status as somebody who can save David for where he can't fight. David is defined by what he can't do. He's not saying, I can beat the lion or I can beat the bear. He's saying, I can get the lamb from its mouth because God delivered me from the lion and the bear. It has nothing to do with me. I've learned to be delivered. I've learned to be the kind of person that doesn't fight against the desire to want to be heroic on my own. Oh, somebody, hear what I'm saying. Uh, David is saying, I'm the kind of person that's okay losing because every time I do, he delivers me. So I'm not here to boast in what I'm capable of. I'm saying every lamb that I delivered from a lion is because God delivered me. And so he says, he doesn't say I'm going to go beat the Philistine. He says the Philistine will be no different. Meaning, the Philistine is better than me, but this is going to be marked by me being delivered Not by me winning. He's going to deliver me from what I'm not capable of doing. That's what that means. 
I delivered you from Egypt because you couldn't deliver yourself. David is saying, he will deliver me from this Philistine because I can't deliver myself. That's how you fight spiritual warfare. You say, you know what, spiritual warfare? You're right, you can beat me, but I'm not here to fight. Someone else is here to fight. Enter stage right, Jesus, and deliver me. The harder we try to beat it, the more defeated we'll be. Somebody in this room needs to feel, I've been feeling this all week, your struggle is because you are trying too hard to stay above water. Stop. We've heard the tragedy of that boat that sunk this, the past week. And one of the survivors said, all I was praying was don't drown, don't drown, don't drown. And she said, I was struggling and struggling and struggling. Finally, she said, Lord, if it's your will. And she said, I stopped struggling. And I slowly rose to the top. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. That's not what kingdom Spiritual warfare is always an inversion of what regular warfare is. What is regular warfare? Strap on the armor and fight. What is kingdom spiritual warfare? Take off the armor and get delivered. Israel, we read in the book of Common Prayer about the walls of Jericho coming down. That was because of Israel, right? They took hammers and they started chipping away at the walls of Jericho. And finally, when they took away enough of the foundation, then the walls of Jericho fell, right? No, they walked around it quietly and the walls of Jericho fell. They were delivered. God said to Joshua, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Meaning you can't get them. I've delivered them. The walls will fall because of me, not because of you. And that's what David is saying. And David pays cost. The devil tempted Jesus to get what was rightfully his without cost. Worship me and you can have these kingdoms. And Jesus knows the only way to those kingdoms is through the cross. This has to cost me. And David said, I'm not going down in armor. I'm going down vulnerable. If I die down there, I die down there. I'm going down just like this, just like he's delivered me every other time. The weaker I am, the more he has to deliver me. So Jesus shows up in three places. And we'll talk about the first one here. When David takes off Saul's armor, he's put on Christ. The first place Jesus shows up is in the moment of David taking Saul's armor off. This is the conventional way to fight. Your armor is better than his armor. You're better at your weapons than he is at his weapons. My armor's better, my weapons are better, my skill is better. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go fight you on your terms, but I'm just gonna be better at your terms than you are. And David takes that whole mentality off. He tests it, and then he takes it off. And what does he say? He says, I can't move in this. I can't be who God created me to be when I'm trying to fight evil the way that evil's trying to fight me. I can't be the way God created me to be when I'm gossiping harder than the people who are gossiping at me just to shut it down. I can't be myself when I'm trying to fight fire with fire. So the first place you start to see that heartbeat of Christ is when David goes down into the valley in weakness, not strength. You can see it with Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem and not a war horse, not chariots. He walks in humble and all of God's power, his dynamo, his, his dynamite is seen in that weakness. But then David stops out of a brook and he essentially picks up the Trinity, and here's why. First, he has a slingshot. 
A slingshot is the father. Because of all the weapons to use, a slingshot is one of the only ones that is a weapon that is wielded above your head. It's something that is spun and used above who you are. And we're going to talk about this because there is a contradiction here that I've created on purpose. David is using a weapon. And before we talk about how Jesus doesn't, we have to look at what these weapons represent. So first is the slingshot. And it represents this, this idea that what is happening, what's delivering me, what's going on is something that's happening above me, not below me. It's not of my doing. It's something that's being wielded in front of me, above me. And then he picks up stones, which obviously represents Jesus. There are a thousand examples about how stone and rock represents Christ. But what does David do? He picks up how many smooth stones? And how many does he use? And so how many are left? He's got four stones in his pouch that went unused. He picked up five. And see, when, this is what I say. When I read that, I'm like, you know, he really only needed one. So why the details? Why pick up five? Why leave four? And there, I've heard a lot of different things. But what stuck out to me actually this morning when I was thinking about this was there are four stones left after the one stone worked. And so these four stones are sitting in his pouch. And they're proof that there used to be five, but only one was needed. I'd like to call those four stones, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four stones that say, listen, we weren't used, but we're going to witness to the one who was. We didn't get thrown at evil, Jesus did, and we're here to be reminders, four reminders, four witnesses, that the rock that God threw at the devil, Jesus, he really did bruise the devil's head, amen? So you got the slingshot, which is the father, and you have the stones, the five stones, which represents the son, and I love this. David stops at water. He's got, he's walking towards the Philistine, and he's got anxiety behind him. Everyone's afraid. Everyone's thinking worst case scenario. Everyone's Debbie Downer negative back here. And in front of him, he's got this jeering, overly enthusiastic, overtly confident group of people. And he knows they shouldn't be. Has anyone met somebody like this before where their enthusiasm is more annoying than their annoying qualities actually could be? Like you're way too excited about yourself? David is standing in between pure anxiety on the one hand and overt confidence on the other, and he's got a giant barreling down towards him, and he stops at water. And you just have to use your imagination. Is this where he first says to himself, you lead me beside still waters? Evil is barreling down on me. An evil of the sort I am not capable of dealing with. If I go back there, it's just nothing but anxiety and loss. If I go over here, I could lose my life today. And in the presence of my enemies, my cup overflows. In the presence of my enemies, you lead me beside still water. And I wonder if the sound of that brook is a sound we need to hear when we're in the midst of our unresolved struggles. Not when they're better, not before they happen, but when we're in the struggle, when the home is being disrupted, when our relationships are on the verge, when our emotions are that so that we're getting to the point where we can't physically handle them anymore. In that moment, can we hear the Holy Spirit sound? Can we hear that calm sound of waters of rest? David stops to find smooth stones. Like, have you ever been to the riverfront? They're not all smooth. He stops and he's thinking and he's contemplating. 
And everyone is yelling at him from both directions. The people behind him think he's nuts and his brothers think he's arrogant. The people in front of him want him dead. No one is on his side. And he sits there and he's contemplating at waters of rest. If that's not the Holy Spirit, I don't know what is. The Holy Spirit is that ability not to wait until you get to the Sabbath to rest, but in the chaos of any moment that you find yourself in, you just hear the sound of God, this running water. And you start to see stones that have been moved on by the water for centuries, thousands of years. And David essentially realizes that God's been preparing these stones right here for me for a very long time, since the beginning of time. And I'm just reaching my hand into what God is already doing. And I'm taking up what is right in front of me to take up. I'm not manufacturing anything. I'm not being somebody I'm not. And in that moment, he's full of rest. And so he goes to Goliath on behalf of the Trinity, the sling, the stones, the water. Satan's taunt is send out one man to fight me. And this is where we've gone wrong with spiritual warfare. We act like we put on the armor of God individually. We always say yes to Satan's terms. We have been fighting demonic forces by ourselves as individuals outside of the church. The armor of God is not an armor I put on. The armor of God is what Jesus is clothed in, and I have the armor on me insofar as I step into the church, into the body of Christ. When I'm with all of you, I have the armor of God on. Satan says, send out one man. The devil has been the accuser of the brethren, the divider. He's always trying to get one person to come out and fight. And don't be cute and say, well, didn't Jesus defeat devil? Jesus is a trinity. He's never by himself. Satan can't get Jesus to be by himself. Because when Jesus shows up, he shows up with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus never did anything alone. And somehow we think we're supposed to fight our spiritual warfare by ourselves. Like, the helmet of salvation is just for me. The belt of truth is just for me? No. It's what Jesus is wearing. And when I'm part of the church, then I have that on. When Goliath said, send out one man to fight me, Israel should have walked forward and said, here I am. All of them should have said, here I am. It's the terms of the fight. If you send out one man, we could beat you one by one. But if you all come out against us, Goliath is proof that the Philistines knew we can't fight community to community. We need to try to splinter them and send one out at a time. And he's always chirping in our ear, you got to handle this one on your own. Madeline, God's going to give you the ability to handle this by yourself. So true with a little bit of lie. No one in this room at this church ever has to feel that any of your fights are meant to be fought by yourself. We are all here for you. This entire room is here for you. That's something I'd like you all to be excited about, what I just said right there. No one is by themselves. Somebody says, you have to fight this on your own. The answer is no, I don't. I never do. I'm part of a family, and in that family, we have an armor on. Every bit of the armor of God is Jesus. He's the gospel. He's the helmet of salvation. He's the breastplate of righteousness. He's the sword of the spirit. He's, all of those things are him. 
So we have to look at this graph real fast that Ian and I made. Body of Christ, and the first area of our spiritual warfare is we're fighting the outside world. So this is us as a whole body of Christ fighting the communities at large, like as one, as one entity. And then on the other side, we are the body of Christ, and we're fighting people in our lives. And so this is more of an individual reality, and that's where we fight as members of the body of Christ. And so no matter how you slice it, when it's the body of Christ versus culture, we fight it as a church together, and whenever it's the body of Christ as members of the body of Christ versus individual people that maybe you're fighting, I have no idea who they are, but you fight them as a member of the body of Christ, there's never a moment where you're not community. There's never a moment where you're fighting as somebody isolated from this room. Even if the fight is, um, my wife, holy help me, help me Jesus. Even if the fight is one-on-one, which I would lose, I promise you. Even if the fight is one-on-one, I'm still fighting as part of this room. This is why Paul says in Corinthians, do we have Corinthians? Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. There's never a point where you're not community. So the armor of God, the spiritual warfare of the armor of God is everything we have to put on, there's something that we have to take off. To put on the armor of God is to embrace Christ-centered community where the armor of God is. And in order to put that on, I have to take off the armor of Saul, which is my individual, personal, private pursuit of defeating my own battles. So it goes like this. We put on the belt of truth. And in order to put on the belt of truth, we have to take off the belt of assumption. Belts keep our pants on. Belts keep our shame from being exposed. The belt of truth is Jesus, amen? He's what keeps my shame from being exposed. And in order to put Christ on as belt, I need to step into his body. And in order to step into his body, I have to take this off. I have to take off the belt of assumption. And assumption is when we determine the truth of another person without including ourselves in that truth. This person is crazy, this person is wrong, this person is not a good person, and we only talk about them, and we only establish the truth about them, and we don't include ourselves in that truth. We're all Goliath first. We've done more being Goliath than we have being David. We've done more picking on people who are smaller than us and trying to intimidate them than we've done being vulnerable, I'm assuming, if my life is any indication. Corporately and individually, we have to see ourselves as people where every assumption we can make about another can be made about us in one category or another. Jesus is our truth. My life is not. My good works are not. My opinion about you is not. Jesus is how we keep our shame from being exposed. Not protecting ourselves by shaming other people, whether communally or individually. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
But in order to wear the breastplate of righteousness, we have to take off the breastplate of accusation. Something new has to cover our hearts. Accusation is the devil's name. Accuser is what his name is. Defending my heart by making somebody else wrong is not the way to protect myself. But in order for me to put on the breastplate of righteousness, I need to step into Christ. And in order to step into Christ, I have to stand at the foot of that cross with my enemies, and we all have to stand accused. We all have to stand accused in order for Christ to be our righteousness. He died because of sin that acts on everybody. There is none who does good, not even... To the extent that I, I fight with accusation, I fight with making opinions about other people, I fight by constantly telling everybody else what they're doing wrong, I don't have the breastplate of his righteousness on, I have the breastplate of my righteousness on. And that's got a lot of holes in it, it's really not hard to penetrate that armor. If we're going to put on Christ as our righteousness, we have to take off the desire to fight accusation with accusation. And I just want to make this point. Accusing someone is a very specific thing. Anthony, you're lying to me. Judging someone is a very cosmic thing. Anthony, you are a liar. So this debate back and forth, like, you're judging me. No, I'm not. You're judging me. No, I'm not. Here's when you're judging someone. You're judging someone whenever you're taking their moment and saying they're always that kind of person. So if somebody's being, somebody's using language on you that's just very inappropriate, you say, listen, you're kind of being verbally abusive right now versus you are a verbally abusive person. Whenever you pass sentence on somebody and say, this is who you are and this is always how you're gonna be, that's judgmentalism. Jesus is the only one who gets to say what my final destination is going to be. No one in this room reserves the right to do that. And we don't reserve the right to do that to people out there. We just have to tell them what the gospel produces for them as possibility. (laughs) You might be headed to being that kind of person, but the gospel says there's a really good chance you can turn from that. We put on new shoes. We put on shoes of the gospel. And in order to put on shoes of the gospel, the gospel is good news. And in order to put on the shoes of good news, we have to take off the shoes of flattery. Something new brings us into good graces with other people. Please hear me. Flattery is when we elevate someone else's pride into accepting us at best or at the very least not inconveniencing us anymore. Where we talk well about somebody to shut them up. We talk well about somebody. We give them something that sounds like gospel, but it's really just to kind of turn the tide on them, to get them off my back a little bit or to to get them to accept me in a way that they wouldn't accept me otherwise if I wasn't appealing to their ego. That's flattery, and flattery sounds a lot like good news, but ultimately it's poison. It sounds a lot like good news, but ultimately it's poison. How does the church flatter the community? We get tolerant over things we shouldn't be tolerant over, because we either know how to hit with a hammer or, or, or accept everything as good. We have to be a little bit more dynamic than that. We have to learn to be a little bit more nuanced. 
Like we've been saying, one of the words that God's speaking over this house is hospitality does not mean you're condoning. But hospitality is that middle road where you're not tolerating or condoning the culture's truths, but you're being hospitable to the people. And maybe somewhere in that hospitality, those kinds of discussions can come up because it's a warm, nurturing environment, and we could have civil discussions about things, not yelling from one side of the street to the other, or honk if you want peace, or whatever the case is. All you're going to do is get traffic jams and car accidents when we do that. I'm honking at you for being on the corner. Honk if you want peace. Here's peace. Stop telling people to honk. All right. Like, isn't that kind of weird? Like, honk if you want peace. How about don't honk, and it'll be sound more peaceful. <laughs> My brain, this is just the way I think all the time. We need to bring good news of hope, not toleration. We need to be speaking possibilities into people's lives, not trying to tolerate them so they like being here. Here's the reality. The church, we're not supposed to grow in numbers if we're not growing in faith first. That's what it says in Acts. We grow in, in faith and numbers. And all we ever want to do as a church is grow in numbers. And here, no, I don't. I don't want to grow in numbers if it means we're just tolerating so people like being here. I want people to like being here because they meet Jesus, not me. I don't want them to be here because we preach good or play good. I want them to be here because they meet Jesus. I want them to be here because they enjoyed a cup of coffee during the week with one of you, and even though you're different, you both enjoyed sitting together. And I want Jesus can sift out sheep and goats. We're just supposed to get them all in front of him. That's our job. Take up the shield of faith. We have to put down the shield of self-promotion. Something new defends us from accusation. Self-promotion is how we violently prove that others are wrong by talking about how right we are. This is still kind of, I had trouble with this, because it's still kind of accusation, but it's just when you accuse the other person by talking really well about yourself. I don't know about Anthony, but I read my Bible every single day. I don't know about Anthony, but I listen to my wife when she talks. Do you remember the time, the first time I met you when we were in that class and Madeline went to ask a question and you said, no, 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 she's not going to be able to explain this right. Let me ask it. And I thought you might be dead by the end of the night. <laughs> like, Lord, help these two. That was so funny. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's a great, great ministry story. Corporately and individually, our promotion of God is our self-forgetfulness. The song we sang said, when you're looking into the light, you can't see your issues. When we are promoting God, we're self-forgetful. We don't bring up what we do wrong. We don't bring up what we do right. You've heard us all, like everyone who's ever preached here has said this, what C.S. Lewis said, we don't think more of ourselves or less of ourselves. We learn to think of ourselves less. And I can only do that when I'm promoting him. We are self-promoters when we talk about all the things that we can't do right as much as all the things that we do right. Low self-esteem is as self-promoting as arrogance because all you're talking about is you. Talk about him. If you're feeling quite confident in yourself, talk about him so he takes you down a peg. And if you're feeling horrible about yourself, talk about him and he'll bring you up a couple pegs. 
block accusations, not by defending ourselves, but by talking about him. We put on the helmet of salvation. In order to put on the helmet of salvation, we have to take off the helmet of rivalry. Something new is in control. The head is the part of the body that controls everything else. Rivalry is the desire for the end result to be the knowledge that we outpowered, outwitted, or outmaneuvered somebody else. Think of what you're struggling with on an individual level and think what the church is constantly being dragged into out in the political world or out in culture all the time. They're asking us to outpower, outwit, or outmaneuver, and if we can't, then they're right and we're wrong. Have you ever talked to that person that if you can't think of an answer fast enough, they think they're right? You ever talk to that one person on text where every time you're trying to answer, you can see the bubbles because they never stop texting? (laughs) And it seems like they wait until you start texting to start texting when you're having an argument on text. The bubbles are just constantly up there because the other person all of a sudden goes from being shy to having words like crazy when they're mad at their husband. I'm such an introvert, Jacqueline says. I'm such an introvert until you're mad, and then you're the most ambitious extrovert that you could possibly imagine, and you're not lacking for words. They're just flowing from your mouth like droplets of honey. That was not in my notes, I promise. Jacqueline, that was the Holy Spirit, so that's not my call. That's not my call. I don't get to make that call. I'm just a servant. That's, I don't get to make that call, unfortunately. I wouldn't have said that. Praise the Lord. We don't have to come up with better arguments than culture. We have to love them better than they're loving us. We don't have to outmaneuver them. We have to have our hands out. Your your biggest rival, and I just, I'm throwing stuff out there for, for individuals. Jealousy will drive you to a kind of anger that nothing else will. Greed is not wanting a lot of stuff. Greed is wanting one thing that somebody you don't like doesn't have. That's what greed is. Greed is looking at your enemy, whoever they are, the person that triggers you the most, finding one thing they don't have and wanting that one thing. What happens in that space is rivalry. So many times we think we're righteously angry. We're in rivalry. We're trying to feel better about ourselves because when somebody succeeds in an area where we feel we felt, they, we perceive them as a threat. If I feel like I didn't go to school, if I feel like you know, my education doesn't suffice and I have a friend who just keeps getting degrees, <laughs> who keeps getting degrees, all of a sudden I start to start chipping away at them, I start to get mad at them and it starts really slow, but I start breaking them apart as a person because their success is hinging on my failure. When in reality, Jesus is saying, that's so good that you haven't done something great, but somebody I've put in your life has done that thing well. We act like puzzle pieces aren't just polar opposites of each other. That's how they fit. That's how you see a picture. Every puzzle piece that fits with another one are polar opposites. We're trying to find people, date people, be friends with people that are just like us. That's, it, that will break down very fast. It'll break down very fast. We need people that are opposites. Like Elder Paul said today, when you look at other, I I talk to the Beacon clergy all the time. They don't get 
why I don't get involved in everything they get involved in politically, and I keep telling them, stand in front of this congregation for five minutes. This is the best political statement in Beacon that exists every single week. We are not a church. We're, all, we're not a white church, a black church, whatever. This is everything. These are a whole bunch of puzzle pieces that are opposites. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it fits. Rivalry says everything has to be like me or it's wrong. That's like a puzzle where you open it and there's just one piece in it. And it's like the ear. And you're like, I don't even know what this is supposed to be. I just make this stuff up. I have no idea what I'm saying. And finally, I close with this. We take up the sword of the spirit and we have to put down the sword of discord. The sword of the spirit divides in a way that unites. Our mouth, our gossip, the way we talk about other people divides in a way that permanently divides. Jesus says, I came to bring division. And he divides in a way that he divides me from the part of me that brings discord everywhere else. He divides, he cuts out of me the part of me that brings discord. And so all that's left of me is the part of me that maintains the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But my words don't do that. My words divide in a way that draws a line in the sand and the enemy's over here and the enemy's over there and that's how we live. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God has to overcome our words. We have to listen long enough to the word of God so that we can be economical with our words. Our words have to be outflows of the word of God. Discord is how we hope the battle ends with the evil person or the evil people gone. This is where we land the plane. Discord says, if it's evil, I want the evil person gone. And Jesus, whenever he's in the temple, whenever he's walking from one town to another, and they bring to him a person that has an evil spirit, Jesus never kicks the person out of the temple. He kicks the evil out of the person. They want to always get rid of the person because they're evil. And Jesus says, how about I do a new thing? where I can, you want to divide the person from the community. What if I divided the evil from the person? Would you be willing to accept them then? Stretch out your hand, and it was restored like the other one, and their response is, we need to kill him. Because they thought evil did that to that person. And Jesus said, I've removed the evil from that person. Now they're here, serve them, love them, take care of them. How does Jesus finally show up in the story of David and Goliath? He shows up as Goliath. And this is what we all need to hear. And please hear me, because this might be challenging, but tr trust me. Goliath dies a shameful death to the shame of his people and to the delight of his enemies. And David stands victoriously over him, having physically killed him. And this is the moment where David doesn't look like Jesus anymore. Because that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't want Goliath dead. He wants the evil out of Goliath removed. He wants Goliath to bow down and be one of the tongues that confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants Goliath to see the light. He wants Goliath to know that hope stands and faith arises.
So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the place of Goliath. He is the people's champion. He suffers a shameful death to the shame of his people and to to the delight of his enemies. He goes to where Goliath is because he wants to raise up what's been violently destroyed so that we can remove the evil from the person, but not the person. He bled and died for Goliath too. And every time we get excited and start like chest bumping over the fact that we can be David and we can beat our giant, we get excited about that phrase because we dehumanize Goliath. We see our giant as circumstance. We see our giant as things we're working through. And that's fine. But we first need to realize Goliath is a person. He has a humanity. And our answer to humanity that intimidates, to humanity that evil uses, should never be to kill them. It should be to see the gospel transform them. Without Christ, we will be more Goliath than David. We will man up. We will put on our best armor. We will defend ourselves. And we'll pick on individuals. Jesus says, I love him so much. I'm going to die the kind of death that Goliath died. Because how does, when, when Jesus wins the battle of evil, does he win it more like David or more like Goliath? When David's done, David is standing and evil is dead. When Jesus is done, good died. And evil was rejoicing for a minute. He flips the whole thing on its head. Whoever the Goliath is in your life, we don't throw rocks at them to kill them. We intercede for them. We pray for them. As Eugene Peterson said, Lord, show me who my enemy is today so I know who to bless. Show me who my enemy is today so I know how to turn, who I'd turn the other cheek to. Show me who my enemy is today so that I can go the extra mile with them. The gospel has to offend our sensibilities. Yes, David is a type of Christ. He goes down in vulnerability and he does for Israel what Israel couldn't do for itself. That's exactly Jesus. But Jesus also goes to the place of Goliath and he suffers a shameful death. And his own people are shamed and the enemy rejoices because Jesus wants us to know that the gospel is here for David and for Goliath. And the minute we label this person as Goliath, we better get ready to serve because Jesus didn't have a sling. He served. And if that, the silence I feel right now is anger and offense to what I just said, Salem, you are welcome. You are welcome. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give us eyes to really and truly see how you view your enemies. How you could hang on a cross and pray for the people who put you there. And help us to be the kind of church that doesn't just say amen to that on Good Friday, but we actually leave here trying to find Goliath so we know who to bless. I pray that we would put down our weapons like you told Peter to do. Peter tried to be David. And you took the slingshot out of Peter's hands and you healed the person he tried to save you from. Peter, whose name means rock, tried to be David. And you stopped him, Father God.
and you healed the enemy that he was going after. You healed Goliath. I pray that you would help us understand truly what it means to serve to our own hurt. To love the unlovable people. To imagine a world in which you are so good that you don't want to remove people. You want to remove the evil from people and you give us the anointing to help do that during the week. So I pray that we wouldn't spend the majority of our time thinking about how we can distance ourselves, how we can outwit, outmaneuver, outpower, be more right then. I pray that we would be the kind of people who are anointed to see how we can bring people into your light. We don't want to just be people who, sang, who says of ourselves it was the light. We want everyone we see to be able to sing that same song one day. And so I pray that you would ask us to do the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the opposite of what we would be inclined to do. When we're inclined to fight back, I pray that we would pull back from that. When we're inclined to lash out, I pray that we would be quiet. When we're inclined to curse, I pray that we would bless. And I pray that that's how we'll appear different. How that's where that will be the space where people see light in darkness. I pray that every person we encounter, we will know intimately in our heart that you bled and you died for that person and you don't want them to be enemy. And so help us destroy in other people what makes them enemy without destroying them. Help us to love in that suffocating way that you love where we're drowning in your love and it's overcoming all of our weaknesses and all of our sin and all of our shame because God, if you keep killing Goliath, we all would have been dead a long time ago. So we thank you that you went to the place of the enemy's death to show us how you want us to serve. Lord, you know what everybody's going through. You know the kind of anger and frustration and confusion these broken relationships can have on us. I pray that you would give us wisdom to fight in this body with other people so we're not going to get ourselves abused or we're not putting ourselves in harm way. I pray that you would fill this entire body of Salem with wisdom to know how to love our enemies without continually getting hurt by them. But we need each other to learn how to navigate that. We need each other, Father God, to learn how to navigate loving our enemy as ourself. So I pray that we wouldn't be doing this on our own. I pray that that would be step one, is that we wouldn't fight these dark battles by ourselves, but we would pull people from this house in and fight together with wisdom and counsel and covering. I pray that there would be no superheroes in this room. No lone wolves, no lone warriors, Father God. I pray that we would see ourselves as one person. And we would have the armor of God on the life of Christ. That we would put on Christ, as Paul says. And we'd be able to take ourselves off and put on Christ. And maybe not have to kill our enemies to overcome them, but maybe mercy can triumph over judgment. 
Maybe love can be hot coals on somebody's head that refines them. I pray that it would start at your table, Father God. We can all stand to our feet. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.